This is John Howell Essential Cuts, your daily rundown of the best of the best from today's show on 890 WLS. The Council's Rules Committee finally went public with a map late yesterday, but it is one that still has the black and Latino council members at odds, does not give the Latino caucus the 15 wards that it wants and frankly deserves. Uh, the latest drawing also shows some big zigzagging uh, that push council members' opponents into other wards and move tax-rich developments out of some wards and into others. Um, Jason Irvin, who is the uh, chairman of the Black Caucus, is relatively happy about this because the map was drawn by Michael Casper, a longtime ally and advisor, ally, ally and advisor to former Speaker Michael Madigan. Uh, in my opinion, it, it does not make sense to potentially create a ward that on paper may say one thing, but in reality is, is something else. I think we need to be honest with the citizens of our city and honest with ourselves of what we're actually doing and not play games with uh, our communities. Now, this audio is from yesterday, but this is the chairman of the Latino Caucus, Viegas, Alderman Viegas, saying they're still willing to negotiate. We always want to negotiate. I think that um, we, have a, uh, we have a great relationship within the city council. We don't want to put... Um, uh, have, have to go to referendum. It would cost um, you know, millions of dollars. We would also potential litigation. I think there's always the opportunity. Well, apparently we're heading that direction. Let's start there with Ray Lopez, 15th Ward Alderman, about the city remap, and it's moving towards a referendum. You are a proponent of the coalition map. Alderman, welcome back. Please explain why. Thank you, John, and good afternoon to all your listeners. I'm a supporter of the coalition map because that map, focuses on keeping neighborhoods together based on the data, based on the real numbers from the census. The other map that was presented by the Black Caucus presented in rules during a special meeting yesterday focuses on incumbent protection. And when you said it zigzags, that is, I think is the understatement of the year because it's, be, it's more than just zigzags. It's cut, paste, stretch, pull, you name it, whatever it takes to keep people in office as opposed to focusing on the needs of neighborhoods, being able to elect, elect someone of their choosing in a coordinated and cohesive manner. Alderman, the Latinos have gained in population. African Americans have diminished, obviously. You're probably deserved of 16 wards. Why do you suppose Irvin is so resistant to make a deal and allow 15 wards? You know, it's all about incumbent protection, John, to be perfectly honest. And I, I love working with a very diverse council, but unfortunately the numbers don't support having 17 African-American majority wards. It's just you can't achieve that unless you start disenfranchising Latinos who have seen growth, particularly in the southwest side. And that is where we have an issue of conflict in particular because the area around Chicago Lawn and Marquette Park and Gage Park has a population of almost 80,000 Latinos, which the Black Caucus sliced and diced just to maintain three black wards. Now, that in and of itself is a violation of the law because you are intentionally disenfranchising those individuals from being able to elect from and among their own community. And this is the same kind of tactics that white aldermen used, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And... As much as we like talking about equity, as much as we talk about inclusion, to start using these same old tactics from decades, from politics decades past, it's really disheartening. And I think we can move forward. 
we should move forward because right now we're not financially able to just throw around $50 million for legal battles and campaigns and things of that nature. But we have an opportunity to do right. And I challenge my colleagues to get back in the room. You know, the coalition has been working for months to bring people together. We filed a, a, an ordinance that people could actually read two months, over two months ago. You know, the one that was presented yesterday is on two pieces of paper that looks like it was photocopied 10 times so you can't make anything out. It's really not about inclusion or, or transparency. We have nothing to hide with our map. Talking here with Alderman Ray Lopez from the 15th Ward, uh, the chairman of the Latino Caucus, Viegas, he criticized the map and he said this, quote, Mike Casper and the Rules Committee are using Trump-like tactics, close quote. Would you like to elaborate on that quote? I don't quite understand the connection there. Sure. I think it's for everyone and all of your listeners know that Chicago is a welcoming city. Chicago has always been welcoming to all people, regardless of their you know, citizenship status, immigration status. And the census did not ask that question. The census just asked if you are a, a real human at this location. And what we've seen from the Rules Committee, what we've seen from the Black Caucus, is the same thing that uh, former President Trump tried to do at the early stages of the census undertaking, which was whether or not to count residents, all residents, or just citizens. And in many cases, this map has been defined based on simply using citizenship in an effort to maintain control by popul- uh, for the incumbents. In the coming weeks, the discussion is likely to center on voting age population. The Black Caucus says it's very hesitant to expand Latino wards because Latinos tend to lean towards being younger. How do you respond to that? <laughs> you know, I, heard, I was in a conversation earlier today, and I heard uh, the chairman of the Black Caucus, Jason Irvin, said that his goal is to create 17 wards and backfill them later with population. That's not how this goes. Hmm. You count how many people are here, and you divide from there. You know, if they were that concerned about, you know, population growth or what's going to happen from now until for the next decade, they should have had that same concern in 2012 when these maps were drawn. They were starting to see the decline of in, within the African-American community. But because they did not address the issues within their own communities, because they did not fully invest in communities that they already controlled, the population decline continued. And here we are with them scrambling now to try to hold on to power to continue the same failed policies that have led to their neighborhoods being decimated up until this point. Do you, by chance, have the inside story on how Lincoln Yards, the mega development, uh, the draft map moves it from Brian Hopkins' 2nd Ward to Wagaspec's 32nd Ward? Is there any inside story there you can share with us? Well, I know that was a, a, a discussion, a dispute between neighbors up there. Um, I believe that Lincoln Yards rightfully belongs in the 2nd Ward. I think Alderman Hopkins has done a great job literally creating a whole new neighborhood within his ward. And I think it would be foolhearted to take that away from him now that all of the hard work and effort has been put into it simply because a neighboring alderman wants that. And too often, I'll say, John, a lot of these issues with the wards are because not for keeping neighborhoods intact, but because one alderman sees an opportunity to gain leverage or gain political capital by stealing something from another alderman. Um, and that is a very poor excuse for drawing maps. Ray Lopez is here in our remaining uh, moments. Let's go to Kim Gordon in the newsroom. Has a question for the alderman. 
Alderman Lopez, if this does go to a referendum, do you feel like one of these maps has an advantage over the other in terms of voters deciding on which map they want? Well, obviously, I'm biased in saying which which one I think is going to win. Um, I believe that when voters look at clear pictures of the map, and over the next six months, you're going to see better, clear definitions of what each map offers the citizens of Chicago. Chicagoans will see that there's a very noticeable difference between the two and that the coalition map actually keeps neighborhoods together. We are tired in our city of seeing wards that cross neighborhoods like a jigsaw puzzle. We have seen stories and examples where you could live in one community and have four different aldermen serving it. Englewood right now has six different aldermen. The coalition map cuts that number down in half to make it easier for residents, not only in Englewood, but in communities across Chicago. And when people see that, I think that they will lean towards the map that I support for the same reason that many others are coming on board with it, because it puts neighborhoods over politicians. Alderman, thank you very much for your time on this Thursday afternoon. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you, John. Have a great day now. Take care. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. Let's talk about Lamar Hoyt. He was the 1983 American League Cy Young Award winner for the White Sox. He died Monday in his hometown of Columbia, South Carolina. Cancer. He was only 66 years old. 83 was also a very good year for our next guest. Former Chicago White Sox slugger, 1983 Rookie of the Year, woodworker extraordinaire, and a man that has uh, been known to ride his Harley naked down I-65, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Let's welcome Ron Kittle back to Double Dallas. Hello, Ron. How are you, sir? Hey, John. How you doing? <laughs> Didn't you get uh, some sort of bet that went bad sideways? You had to ride your Harley naked someplace? Well, you know, I paid uh, three... My uh, ex-wife and my two kids, their tuition for $37,000 uh, that day. And my buddy said, can you ride your bike naked for 500 And I said, no, I got that in my pocket. He goes, how about 1000 cash? And uh, all I was thinking about, that's $36,000 tuition that I was paying. <laughs> <laughs> so I took off on it. What the hell? <laughs> Man's got to do what he has to do. Your uh, memories of Lamar Hoyt as a teammate and a uh, person. You know, Lamar's, uh, I've, I've been, I was teammates with him in the minor leagues, uh, since 1979. He, there's nobody that had more confidence in him than he walked out on the mound because he knew how to pitch. He didn't have overpowering things, but he could pinpoint a strike or any pitch at any time in a game. And I, I brought up a story with Paul Richards, the old manager for the White Sox, and he was a pitching instructor in the minor leagues and I'm catching at the time and he told Lamar to, start working out of his stretch and Lamar said why well, I ain't never been in it so huh. that that's just confidence and he was dead serious that guys in the minor leagues couldn't hit him and that's why he got some double AA, a triple a to the big leagues uh in about a month and a half I'm glad you brought up 79 the, the year he came up because I was looking at some of his stats and he went two and six to start the season but then ended 22 and four the rest of the way he obviously was a smart guy He's a guy that learned how to pitch in the bigs. It's safe to say he was a pitcher, not a thrower. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you beat Lamar, you had to beat him in the first inning. And it was almost like a ritual that he didn't warm up and get his sweat going on uh, enough. You know, this, everybody's body's different. But I tell you what, if he got out of the first inning, uh, uh, sayonara, you, you had no chance to beat him because he just got better as the game went on. But his personality, uh, 
he's out. He was outstanding. I mean, he was just a good country boy, and he liked to have fun, and uh, and he won the big game every time it was around. He was a guy that was a positive influence, uh, Ron Kittle, as opposed to a negative influence. Oh, oh absolutely. You know, he he was kind of a loner. I mean, uh, there's a lot of pitchers like Tom Seaver. I mean, he was kind of a loner. He you know he'll let you in his circle every once in a while, but. Uh, they were focusing on winning. You know, Lamar had some uh, stray incidents after his arm got hurt a little bit. But uh, I tell you what, when he was healthy, he was as good as there was in a game. How is it that you can be the 83 Cy Young Award winner and then in 84 they deal you because you go 13 and 18 and 84? What are they thinking? Uh, you know, at the time we were looking for a shortstop, and that's uh, how we got Ozzie Guillen. Yeah. Uh, so, and Ozzie... You know, he had to come with uh, a pretty good price tag out there. San Diego wanted a pitcher. They were looking for a right-handed pitcher. And it, it just, you know, we didn't want to lose Lamar. But the future of the White Sox is looking for a shortstop. And Ozzy played there for, what, 13 years? Yeah. So and in then, the long run, that's a pretty, pretty good move. I guess. And then Lamar Hoyt came back, and he was the uh, 1985 All-Star Game MVP. So he bounced right back at 16-8 and eight in 85. So... One bad year, the, the Sox traded him, and they got Ozzie Gillian. Um, Tony Tony Larusa said that he was he had average stuff, but amazing command and tremendous confidence, which seemed a little bit like a backhand comment. But after talking to you, Ron Kittle, it makes more sense. As long as I have you here, before you have to go off and ride your Harley naked again or get back into the uh, wood shop. Um, what do you think of Tony Larusa's performance as a manager this past season in the playoffs? There's been a lot of talk about that. I, I tell you what, I'm giving Tony an A double plus to tell you the truth because uh, of all the injuries that his team sustained, I mean, every night it was a different lineup, and I tell you what, he, he handled it well. So to get back to Tony, a lot of managers will go in a room and talk to 25 guys at one time. Tony would sit there and talk to each player individually, you know, what he expects out of you, what you need to do, and, and that's a trait. That's You don't win – you know, so many games in the, in the major leagues and go to the Hall of Fame not knowing how to do that. Uh, I compliment him on that, but he was he did a great job. Uh, like I said, uh, you know, he got to the end out there. He's not throwing a pitch, hitting the ball or catching it. Uh, I think the, the butts got a little bit tight, and they just couldn't come through it, and uh, I'm glad he's coming back for next year. That was going to be my follow-up question. I think he still has what it takes to manage in the big leagues in this era. I mean, he's two, three innings ahead of every manager in baseball. You know, I mean, there's not uh, six six guys in a dugout with uh, computers writing down stats. You know, you, you've heard of, the, what is it, five, uh, cyber metrics. Tony had that in his head uh, 40 years ago. I mean, he, he paid attention to that. He's a detailed person. Uh, I just told him jokingly, I said, I don't want to see you run out of the dugout anymore. Because you look like a really hundred-year-old man trying to <laughs> catch up to the umpire. <laughs> I haven't seen you in a couple years, Ron Kittle. This is Ron Kittle, former White Sox slugger. Last guy to hit it out, completely out of old Comiskey. Right, you were the last guy to hit it right out of the park. Yep, last one, and I uh, can't do it now. But uh, you know, it, it's some great memories. I mean, we had a good team in '83. Great teammate, great pitchers. Probably one of the best coaching staffs, but. Uh, you know, I enjoy working for the Chicago White Sox. Uh, whatever they want me to do, pick up peanut shells or visit <laughs> somebody sick in the hospital, I, I enjoy doing that. Well, that was Jimmy Leland was Tony's bench coach that year, correct? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and another great baseball mind on there. And uh, he wound up managing in the major leagues and, and had a great career. Yeah. Is he the guy that threatened to beat up um, who was working with Harry Carey upstairs? Um, guy that ran Jimmy the. Pearsall? Yeah, Jimmy Pearsall. Was it Leland that uh, threatened to kick his rear end? <laughs> There's a lot of people who wanted to keep Jimmy Pearsall's rear end. Uh, it was probably a long list, but, you know, J- Jimmy was funny, and uh, one of the jokes was they asked me who the toughest pitcher was in 83, and I said it was Jimmy Leland in batting practice because he couldn't throw a strike. <laughs> Are you still in shape? Uh, I weigh 233 right now. Uh, I-, I feel great. I work every day, uh, you know, Arthritis is coming into the joints, but I spent the day outside all day today. And when it got a little windy, I came down and I tore carpet up in the basement. Are you still woodworking and building uh, cigar humidors? Yep, I got two on the table right now as we speak that uh, I'm going to take to get them engraved. And I got another uh, White Sox World Series bench I got to start banging out till next week. Do you have? Do you sell these to the general public or just for your buddies? Uh, it's kind of word of mouth, you know. I. You know, I took a tour of the Davidoff Cigar Factory, and, you know, I gave their master carpenter a bunch of cash, and he gave me all their plans. Nice. That's, that's how it works. And so <laughs> I'm making those humidors for $600, and Davidoff is selling the same ones exactly uh, for two to $10,000. Well, I'll so, be in touch. Yeah, I mean, they're great humidors. I love doing it. It's a lot of fun, and... uh it's a good smell when you're uh, cutting Spanish cedar. Would you like me to send you the cash or just send it directly to your ex-wife? Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> it goes to me, John. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right, Mr. Kittle. Nice talking to you, sir. All right. Have a great day. Talk to Take you later. Take care. Bye. Ron Kittle, uh, former White Sox, uh, 1983 Rookie of the Year, last guy to hit it out of old Comiskey Park, and uh, woodworker extraordinaire and Harley owner and exhibitionist. You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. Our next guest, Josh Krauschauer, is the National Journal Daily's senior national political columnist, editor-in-chief of the hotline. The Democrats have some real trouble, and it begins and ends with our VP, Harris, and also our Sec of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, who is promising everything in both the first infrastructure bill and the second infrastructure bill. We're not as focused on shovel-ready projects, which is the big focus back then. Right now, we're really interested in shovel-worthy projects. Things that are ready right now, that's great. Uh, things that are going to take a few years to prepare, Problem for that's the okay, Dem- too. Excuse me. Sorry, sorry, Mr. Secretary. Shame on me. Uh, the problem is that the president is 79 years old. It appears that the VP and... Uh, uh, Mayor Pete are not ready for prime time as far as 2024. So let's start there with Josh Krauschauer. And if you follow him on Twitter, at Hotline Josh, it is apparent that he tweets or retweets about every two minutes around the clock, 24-7, 365. Josh, do you ever, ever set the phone down? No, you know, it's funny. It's, 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 uh, you know, I, I have podcasts and my columns that I use Twitter to get ideas and to kind of engage test ideas out but you know it doesn't take up it's, it's kind of part of my job i you know excerpt things i'm reading in the news and i'll put it on twitter but it, you know i'm reading the newspaper anyway i'm reading i'm reading the newsletters from you know select publications anyways and i'm just sharing some of the more interesting stuff like i would do as part of my day job so do you get into a back and forth with your readers like debates on twitter no i mean maybe originally when i first got on the platform you know i thought it was a good way to communicate to folks but 
unless it's someone I know or someone that's having a good faith conversation, usually you just have to, these days you just kind of have to ignore a lot of the noise, um, good or bad, frankly. But, uh, you know, there's, there's sometimes you'll talk to folks, you know, some sources actually reach out to you uh, privately on Twitter, which is a useful, um, you know, part of that whole platform. But, you know, once you get down that rabbit hole, it's not very productive. <laughs> that's for sure. I wanted to talk to you about the Democrats and what position they find themselves in. We have more resignations in Harris's office, VP Harris's office. And you wrote a piece about uh, Pete Buttigieg that really caught my attention. I know it's early, but let's go ahead and play the parlor game. There's a long list of failed Democrat presidential candidates, as you wrote, who fasten themselves as the smartest people in the room. Is Mayor Pete, has he been added to that list? Yeah, well, let's take one step back, which is what you alluded to, John. The fact that we're talking about sort of the succession scheme for Biden, even though, you know, he says he's going to run for another term, shows the kind of trouble that this Democratic Party, this White House faces, um, that no one believes that Biden at age 79 now is going to actually run for re-election. And Vice President Harris is not seen as a competent successor. He's just had gaffe after stumble after, after mistake. And that's raised this, this anxiety in Washington among Democrats on who, who's the next in line. And, you know, I'm sort of struck by the fact that Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is the guy that's mentioned a whole lot, even though and he's a nice guy. I've, I've interviewed him a number of times. I think very highly of him. But from a political standpoint, he's the last guy you want kind of representing the party because he reflects the, the, the party's move to the elite, party's, party's reliance on these very, uh, you know, upscale, affluent voters that don't make up a whole lot of votes, but, but all, and also have, have views on issues that are often at odds with the majority of voters in the country. So, you know, I, even as transportation secretary, which in theory is a position with the infrastructure bill passing as a way for him to get out there, travel the country, talk about all the roads and bridges being built, you know, he's, he's talking about equity a whole lot. He's talking about, you know, he's waxing poetic about the academic history of how highways were built that separated <laughs> neighborhoods in different cities, which is, I find that fascinating, John, yeah, but it's yeah. not what a transportation secretary representing the government should be saying day to day. That's not going to win him votes. It's not going to win him popularity contests. He's talking about electric cars that are going to be really cool when, when we have electric cars driving across, across the country, but it costs about $60,000 to buy an electric car. Only about 1% to 2% of the country has one. It, it is not realistic in the short or medium term that that's going to be a viable goal to talk about electric cars when you're dealing with high gas prices. So, so there's a sort of a disconnect still to this day. I mean, when he ran for president, he had trouble winning um, you know, more beyond the, the, the kind of upscale white uh, suburban voters at the Democratic Party. And he's having the same problem as transportation secretary, really connecting with your average voters that aren't, aren't you know, trying to have a history lesson or, or sort of this academic co commentary on what's going on at the state of the transportation department. We'll get back to uh, Harris and maybe Buttigieg, but let's talk a bit about the Democrats losing support from their old base of working class voters. Is there anything left to that, that, that traditional Democrat base or has it been Trump and, Trumpized? Uh, he, the funny thing, you know, the ironic thing, which we learned from 2020, but it's gotten a little worse since then, is that it's not just, we, we always hear white working class voters would be the, the voters that were moving away from the Democratic Party, and that, those were the Trump voters, and, and that was a problem. But, but now we're seeing non-white working class voters having issues with how far left and how you know, disconnected, frankly, the Democratic Party has become with working class and middle class interests. And that, that is the Buttigieg problem, but that's just a broader problem within the party where there's a bubble in Washington where you don't have a lot of voices familiar 
with what average working class, middle class Americans go through. There's an elitist a sensibility within the Democratic Party that doesn't have a diversity of opinion that's reflected in a lot of these big high level conversations. And it affects everyone of every race, every background. It's a class issue as much as an ideological issue. And it's something that is going to be a big, big problem for the party because you're not going to win an election appealing to just a quarter of the country. You're going to have to have a much more broad-based message. The Democratic Party used to be successful at reaching. This is, this is the party that was the party of Jackson. It's the party of the working class. That's, that's how they always fashioned themselves going back centuries. Uh, now they don't even have Andrew Jackson. At the, you know, they don't, they, they've, they've kind of uh, canceled Andrew Jackson from their party history, and they've become much more elite, much more upscale. And they're not enough of those voters to win elections nationally. Josh Krauschauer is here, senior national political columnist for National Journal. Is there any way to salvage the Democrat Party, or does it just have to burn down, similar to the Republican Party going full boat Trump? I mean, do they just have to burn it down and start over at some point? And where where are the uh, Democrat sleepers? If Harris isn't in contention, Biden's not going to stand for re-election. I can't think of anybody else in a leadership position in D.C. right now. Are there some uh, Democratic sleepers? out in flyover territory? Well, first of all, the Republican Party has its own issues. It, it, does anyone want to win, win, win elections is the question I have for both parties. Though so being out of power is a political benefit these days because it's the, the Biden administration and the Democratic Congress is doing the governing and, and facing some tough times. So they're going to face the governing burden, but Republicans have their own issues that we've talked about in the past. You know, as far as Democrats on the bench, I mentioned uh, the new mayor of New York City coming up, uh, Eric Adams, is someone who... Maybe he's not going to have national ambitions, but he's going to be a fascinating figure to watch in New York City. And if he can get crime under control, if he can actually make that city a little more livable again, uh, he's going to get a whole lot of brownie points in, in, within the party. Uh, he, he checks a lot of boxes as someone who, um, you know, is, is reflecting the, 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 the diversity and the ideological moderation of, of, of where the Democratic Party needs to be. So I don't know if he's going to be presidential material. He's got his own baggage and his own issues that he's going to have to deal with once he becomes mayor. But he's the type of candidate that I think Democrats could, could look at it and learn lessons from. You know, I, I mentioned in my column the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, um, a very fascinating guy who's you know, pretty liberal but, but, but very heterodox on a lot of issues and kind of steers. He's a business guy, got a business background, and does things his own way. Um, he's someone to, to keep an eye on. You know, Amy Klobuchar in Minnesota, the senator who did pretty well in the last primary, is someone I think is still worth paying attention to. Um, she's young enough, and she has a uh, base in the mid- Midwest. Uh, you know, Biden wanted to pick her as his running mate until uh, what happened in Minnesota with George Floyd and some of the racial issues in the summer of 2020. Um, that got her out of the picture, but I think she could reemerge as a serious political candidate in the future. And just to double down, you think Harris this early on is completely cooked? Well, no, no one's completely cooked. And if you're a vice president, I mean, I, I, it's hard to see her deciding not to run on her own if, if that opportunity presented itself. But, you know, I covered her campaign for Senate in California. I covered her presidential primary campaign. And everyone behind the scenes is just very underwhelmed by her ability to, to understand politics, to be successful. She just doesn't have, you know, some people get politics, some people don't get politics. And Harris, even before she ran for president, there was a lot of widespread worry uh, among folks who have worked with her that she just, you know, she's, she's sort of a Bay Area Democrat who plays to a certain constituency but doesn't have the tools necessary to play nationally. And I think we're seeing that in real time as vice president. And, you know, I'm just very skeptical, as are a lot of Democrats these days, that she has the ability to, to win a, a big, big hard-fought presidential contest. And then just back to Buttigieg one more time. Um, 
I can't think of an example of a small town mayor becoming president, even with a you know a gubernatorial stint in there. I'm just trying to I'm trying to look back historically and see if anybody who was a mayor of like South Bend, Indiana, type of community became president of the United States. Is there anybody historically you can think of? No, I mean it, that, that that's sort of the elephant in the room, and I know that Trump sort of reset the conversation on who can be president, and you needed that kind of experience, but. There's never been someone who, um, I mean, look, the military experience helps Buttigieg. I guess that's one of his biggest biographical assets. But, yeah, being a small city mayor and a small agency cabinet secretary is very unusual. So, I mean, Herbert Hoover, I guess, was a, you know, he helped organize the, the, food, the relief effort during World War One, and that, that got him on the map when he ran for president. But it's very rare that someone without, you know, statewide political experience, management experience. You know, I also wrote in the column that, I thought it was a little unusual that the person hired to run the implementation of the infrastructure bill wasn't Buttigieg, but it's actually the former mayor of New Orleans, who actually has a big city background in New Orleans. It's you know, bigger than South Bend, certainly. Uh, I thought that was sort of almost a swipe at Buttigieg. Like he, they want him to be doing up the TV shows, but Mayor Landry was the one who's actually making sure the money gets spent wisely and effectively. Uh, it's kind of a tell that maybe Buttigieg doesn't have the real-time management experience that you need as a president. It is a very interesting parlor game, even this far out. Thank you very much for your time, Josh. We'll read more at National Journal, and we'll follow you the very prolific Twitter feed of Josh Kroshauer, too. <laughs> Hotline Josh, right? At Hotline Josh? Hotline Josh, and you can reach out to me. I, I will try. If you, uh, you know, have any respectful feedback, I will definitely try to get back to as many, as many <laughs> of the responses as possible. A once-in-a-generation set of investments, including $17 billion to improve infrastructure in our ports and our waterways. It's the biggest federal investment in ports in U.S. history. All right. Terrific. We're waiting. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. Well, I didn't hear Christmas Carol per se there, but uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Doc Severinsen and the Tonight Show Band here. 622, it's been a long time since I've done a special people update regarding January 6th. Remember Mo Brooks, the good congressman that day? Today is the day American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. Well, one patriot now has become the 18th individual from Illinois charged in connection with the Capitol breach, riot. I don't use the word insurrection. It was not an insurrection. It was a riot. A Chicago activist who allegedly declared we are patriots uh, is another one caught up in the largest criminal investigation in U.S. history. Larry Ligas, and I think Chuck Gowdy, the Silver Fox, broke this on Channel 7 yesterday afternoon. Larry Ligas was arrested bright and early Wednesday morning. When the FBI comes at 6 in the morning, hello, for patriots or, I don't know, governors, uh, generally they mean business. He is charged with entering and remaining in a restricted building on grounds, disorderly or deceptive conduct, blah, 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 blah. Three or four other charges. They're all misdemeanors. He spent eight minutes wandering around the U.S. Capitol, uh, January 6th. And yes, not surprisingly, a tipster alerted the FBI. Apparently, Mr. Uh, Ligas, who likes to be noticed, uh, was a uh, guest on NPR. And he said at that time on NPR, this is either the 6th or the 7th or shortly thereafter, we are not moving on. We are not Republicans. We are mega. We are the mega party. We are patriots. An email address associated with Ligas responded to a request for comment yesterday. This is John Seidel's column in the Sun-Times by saying, quote, 
Chicago is dealing with a pandemic of violent crime and epic corruption, and the U.S. Justice Department is chasing down law-abiding patriots. Close quote. Yes, they are. But you broke the law. So you're not law-abiding. Well, allegedly. Allegedly. You have a right to defend yourself. I want the authorities to chase down everybody involved in violent crime and epic corruption and storming the Capitol. So you're in that same group as far as I'm concerned. I draw no distinction. Ligus is a longtime political activist in Logan Square with a history. The judge ordered his release on his own recognizance. He's not a flight risk. He's not an imminent threat. Uh, Ligus also appears to have ties to the gubernatorial campaign of Republican State Senator Darren Bailey, whose campaign website did name Ligus as a contact for an October fundraiser at a pub in Barrington. But the campaign spokesman for Bailey said, Ligus has never been a member of our campaign staff. And, just to be clear, they also said, they trust the court system to ensure anyone breaking the law is held accountable for their actions. Good. There was a YouTube video, apparently, involved in this as well. And the complaint also indicates that somebody using Ligus's name and phone number called the FBI National Threat Operations Center to report voter fraud March and April of 2019. Wow, that's early. It also says that an FBI special agent interviewed Mr. Ligus as a witness in a separate matter, October of 2017. So he has uh, been well known. He'll have his chance to defend himself with all the other, I guess, what, north of 750 people now that have been charged. Just to be clear, he's only charged with misdemeanors. Speaking of special people, uh, the House January 6th committee has voted to recommend contempt charges against a former Trump DOJ official, Jeffrey Clark, Liz Cheney, one of two Republicans, whatever that means now, who sit on the select committee for January 6th, had this to say about our former, uh, our former DOJ, DOJ official, Jeffrey Clark. According to multiple sources, Clark was asked by then-President Trump to take over the role of Attorney General, partly so he could issue a series of letters falsely suggesting that the Department of Justice believed presidential election may have been stolen. Uh, Liz Cheney, what if he had uh, pursued that? Imagine what would have happened if all the Trump-appointed leaders at the Justice Department had supported Jeffrey Clark and corruptly issued those false letters. Imagine what January 6th would have been then, an even more profound constitutional crisis. She's spot on about that. Now, he has been uh, subpoenaed. He has decided, his lawyer said, he is going to come and appear on Saturday? We will depose Mr. Clark on Saturday, and at that point we will know exactly what testimony Clark believes may incriminate him. Now, just to be clear, the Republicans, this is a Congressman Tom Cole, I believe of Oklahoma, if I'm not mistaken, saying, look, uh, this is nothing more than a political witch hunt. Fake, fake, fake. Unfortunately, this resolution comes to us as a result of an inherently political process driven by an inherently political select committee. So, Mr. Clark, just like... Uh, the former chief of staff, Mr. Meadows, they have seen the writing on the wall, and they realize that the January 6th committee uh, still has teeth for a while. For a while, still has some teeth. It's not going to go on two and a half years like Benghazi, but it's going to run right through the midterms. It'll, it'll dissolve quickly after the midterms. But uh, Ellie Honig, who I like on CNN, was explaining earlier that by agreeing to appear on Saturday in front of the committee, he avoids the contempt of Congress charges 
Mr. Uh, Mr. Clark. He now cannot be charged with criminal contempt if he takes the fifth because that's a legally valid basis to not answer questions. However, he still can be charged with any other crimes that he may have committed around January 6th. They just won't have his own statement to use against him. Well, Ellie Honig, can you give us a quick tutorial on his alleged crimes? Let's remember what Jeffrey Clark did. He wrote a memo when he was one of the highest ranking members of DOJ saying, we have detected significant potential election fraud in the state of Georgia. You ought to call a special election and potentially appoint a different slate of electors. That is a fraud to begin with. It also is a crime to interfere with the state's ability to administer a fair election. It is a crime to conspire to defraud the United States of a free and fair election. So Jeffrey Clark does have legitimate concerns here for potential criminal prosecution. And those lawyers are expensive. Isn't it kind of a cop-out to uh, take the fifth when you appear in front of a, a, a committee? It is a constitutionally sanctioned cop-out, but that's what the Fifth Amendment does. It allows people to avoid answering questions if it might incriminate them. And it'll be interesting to see if other people, potentially someone like Roger Stone, who may have criminal exposure, if they too take the Fifth. If Steve Bannon had taken the Fifth on day one, he absolutely would not be charged with criminal contempt of Congress today. But it's also important to note there's a stigma attached with taking the Fifth, and rightly so. I mean, what a disgrace it is that Jeffrey Clark, a high-ranking DOJ former official, now has to hide behind the fifth because he may have, and he's acknowledging that he has potential criminal liability. Jeffrey Clark, former assistant attorney general for the Environment and Natural Resources at our Department of Justice, and Larry uh, Ligas, activist here in Chicago. Just two very, very special people. We love you. You're very special. Special I know you're paying. Yeah, I made it like a foot inside, and they pushed me on, and they paced me. I know you're hurt. Every single in there is a traitor. We have to have peace. Today is the day American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. So go home. The Supreme Court's not helping us. No one's helping us. We love you. You're very special. Let's have trial by combat. He just said trial by combat. We love you. You're very special. I'm ready. I know how you feel. Just go home. You're very special. Don't worry, we'll find you. You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. Dan Bracken is a captain of the fire department in Flossmoor. He also works at the Posen Fire Department. The Lights and Ladders Brigade was the idea of Dan and his wife, Lacey. They have recruited the firefighters from around the state. Dan and Lacey's daughter, Finley, passed away last year at the age of three. So with that in mind, three local charities are now partnering to bring holiday cheer to families who are battling cancer. The first ever Lights and Ladders Brigade, and it happens tomorrow. Dan, welcome to WDL, sir. How are you? Good, sir. Thank you, Mr. Hoff. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you for joining us. Sorry to hear about your daughter. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, this is what I call a chance for people to, talent deserving wider recognition, to use the radio station to try to... Uh, raise some money for worthy causes here. Explain to us, more than 60 firefighters across the city and the county, including Chicago and Posen, as we mentioned. Essentially tomorrow, firefighters and some volunteers are going to create winter wonderlands, decorating the outside of families' homes with uh, lights and garland and inflatable characters and raising some holiday cheer and maybe some money uh, during a difficult time for all these families. Explain to us how you came up with the idea with your wife. So, yeah, so that was our, um, uh, after 
I'll, I'll start from the beginning. After our daughter Finley uh, passed away, um, we want you know we we had an overwhelming uh, amount of support from the you know the local community, the the uh, St. Cadgeton Parish, the South Side of Chicago, and uh, throughout the state. Uh, being a firefighter and teaching for the State Fire Academy, I've uh, had the honor and privilege of you know working with from tip to tip, from St. Louis to to Waukegan um, and everywhere in between. So uh, guys are very generous and um, that they, they, they'll do anything that you ask them to do, um, especially when it's for a good cause. So we just wanted to, Lacey and my wife, myself and our, our foundation wanted to pay it forward and, um, and, you know, do something that, that someone did for us, but in, in a bigger sense. Um, and the two foundations that were, you know, really instrumental helping us out were, the, were Christmas Without Cancer and the uh, Tom Hopkins Foundation. So we figured uh, you don't see many foundations partner together ever. Um, so we gave them a call and, and they were they jumped on board before we could even finish the uh, the phone conversation. So for my listeners who want to support this, uh, FinleyForever.com is the website to go to, F-I-N-L-E-Y, FinleyForever.com. Are the yard signs still available or are those gone? They are. So we uh, we sold out of them fairly quickly. We were at about 500 in about two days, and we just ordered another, I think, four or 500. So that's uh, we, we didn't plan on selling out of them that fast, but they're, they'll be in tomorrow, and uh, we're going to try to sell some uh, along the route, the six houses that we're decorating, and then from there forward, uh, um, we'll, we'll continue to sell them and, until, we, until we run out. The uh, So we can still contribute, obviously. Yes, correct. So uh, all three of the foundations do have websites, uh, Christmas, Without, Christmas Without Cancer, the uh, Tom Hopkins Foundation, and the Finley Forever Foundation. And all three are, you know, basically uh, we're collecting the money for this this, uh, ch- this charity uh, event, um, but all three are taking um, donations year-round, um, and they all support uh, local families that are affected by cancer. Are the, uh, the homes pretty much in Chicago, Mount Greenwood, and Beverly, and maybe Oakland and Evergreen Park? Correct. Uh, we're going to start uh, from the from the east uh, side uh, of Chicago, not the east side, but the east uh, east side of Western, and uh, we're going to work our way all the way to Cicero, and then back into the uh, Mount Greenwood neighborhood for our last house, and um, and then have a little get together at a, a local uh, establishment. Do you want to mention the establishment? I do. Uh, McNally's uh, at 112th and uh, Western. Do the uh, six homes, they're aware you're coming, because I imagine it would be quite startling to have the fire department roll up. Yeah, so uh, this took a lot of planning uh, in a short period of time. But thankfully, like I said, talking to firefighters and firemen, um, made a couple phone calls and all the uh, neighboring towns and and, um, the communities we're decorating in uh, jumped all over it. So we we actually have... uh, uh, the Garden Homes Fire Protection District, which is an, one of the only all-volunteer fire departments left in Cook County, um, they're, they're giving us a, an engine and a crew, along with the Posen Fire Department, the Flossmoor Fire Department. Um, and then we have Evergreen Park. Uh, Chief uh, Corey Hojack, or Deputy Chief Corey Hojack, is a lot, uh, having the, the guys show up in uh, the Oakland Fire Department. They're also going to show up when we're in Oakland. So. We just hope for good luck tomorrow. You don't get called away. You're going to do this from, what, 4 to 8 in the afternoon through the evening? Correct. Uh, we have just, uh, we finalized our list today. It's from 4 to 8. We're going to meet at uh, St. Cadrin in the uh, school parking lot, and we're going to convoy from there. And we have just over 100 volunteers, uh, firefighters from as far as St. Louis all the way up into, into Wisconsin. So nice. this, uh, this took off. This took off. We thought we were going to 
get away with uh you know about 2025 and and now we have about 100 plus so hopefully we have the 60 degree weather we had today oh wouldn't that be great what is the uh i was going to ask you about that uh, time permitting coming up here um are you are you going to full clark griswold on every one of these homes is it just going to light up the whole neighborhood by the time you're done so um just like any other husband my wife did all of that and uh she's going to point and shoot and we're going to throw ladders and uh she's going to tell us right left and we're going to just like hanging a picture in your living room i'm just going to you know we're all just going to be led by a bunch of women telling yeah. us how to decorate so but you know really gotta, mean, how how great yeah, is it for the, these families that are going through such such horrible times especially when kids are involved to be able to get some holiday decorations put up by firefighters tomorrow it's just a great cause it's very it's just heartwarming well, thank you. Yeah, it, it was um, it was one of the things I could tell you personally that it was the last thing on our minds. And uh, uh, my dad and my brothers and, and uh, some of my neighbors did ours. We, we did it with them. But, you know, you didn't want to drag it out, uh, drag out your Christmas decorations when you're going through all that. So we figured to take that off and, and still give everybody Christmas and not have to worry about it. Um, we'll put them up. And if they don't want to take them down, we'll come back and take them down. We just want to spread some holiday cheer and pay it forward and and, you know, put a smile on someone's face. That's it. You can still use our donations, even though the event is tomorrow at finleyforever.com, finleyforever.com. Are there plans to do this again next year? Um, I'm thinking that's probably so. Uh, we, we This was, like, off the cuff. Uh, we, we just wanted to, you know, do something, and we're getting some phone calls and some interest, and uh, uh, I definitely, we're def- we will definitely do it again next year, without a doubt. Dan Bracken is the captain of the fire department in Flossmore. He's also part of the uh, Posen Fire Department. Do you come from a family of firefighters? Um, so I do and I don't. I half, half the side of my family were firefighters, the other half were not. So, yeah, I, I do. I, I do. I've been uh, been very fortunate my whole life to be around the fire department uh, in the city of Chicago, and, and I worked for the city for several several years, um, and I got the, you know, as a chi- childhood dream, and uh, it's the best uh, job in the world. This is a loaded question, but is there any other profession filled with men and women that are as equally generous as firefighters? None that I could think of. <laughs> I concur. I agree. So you got guys come from St. Louis and all over the uh, the state. I mean, East St. Louis, all over the state to help you tomorrow. Hundred guys. Hundred guys. Yeah, hundred hundred um, firefighters, and then plus the foundational foundation members. And uh, just as you know as well as I do, there's people that uh, don't respond, but they'll just so, show up. So this could turn into a you know a, one big parade down Western. So well, Western's known for great parades. I understand that somebody's <laughs> playing Grinch. Who got that job? Uh, one of our uh, family friends. Uh, she does a very good job. She goes through the uh, throughout the neighborhood. Um, locally and, and uh, plays the Grinch during the holiday season. So we uh, we commandeered her for the night to play Grinch. Well, I hope you, I concur, I hope you have weather like we had today for this uh, tomorrow. Again, when do you step off and uh, where will we see the uh, procession tomorrow? So we're going to step off from St. Cadden's, uh, hopefully right at uh, 4 o'clock, um, uh, you know, barring the, uh, the organizational part. Uh, Prior to that, and hopefully by 4.15, we'll be at the 9700 block of Walden Parkway. Um, and we're going to decorate a family's house there. And from there, we're going the next, that's about it. We're going to do an hour each house. We'll go from Walden Parkway down 99th Street to 98th and Trumbull. And we'll decorate a house there. And from there, we'll go to 98th and Central Park. 
decorate a house there, and each one we're allotting about 45 minutes or less than an hour max. Um, and then from 99th and Central Park, we're going to head our way to 103rd and Laporte, and we're going to drop off some presents. We're not decorating that house. We're just stopping by to drop off some gifts and uh, show the fire trucks. That was the family's request. Um, and then from uh, 103rd and Laporte, we're going to go to 4,000 block of 105th place in Oakland. And we're going to decorate their house. And from there, we're going back in the, uh, down, uh, down Pulaski to 111th to, um, 109th and Drake. Um, and we're going to decorate our last house. And that, that little boy, um, is actually in treatment right now, um, undergoing a stem cell transplant. So they're not home and they're expected to be home on December 23rd. So, um, that wasn't our intended goal, but it worked out perfect that they'll be able to come home to a fully decorated house. You're a good man. All you and all your volunteers, Dan Bracken, thank you for your time. Have a, a great time tomorrow. And the, uh, Merry Christmas to you and your wife. You too. Thank you, Mr. Hobb. Take care. Please call me John. Thank you, Dan. Take care. <laughs> Thanks, John. Talk you to too. you. Thank you. Bye-bye. John Howell, Essential Cuts. Check back every weekday for another episode of John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS.